I saw the whole deaf and dumb school healed on mats. And I turned around and I saw their teachers crying because they'd lost their job now. Joy is actually a skill. Contentment is actually a skill. These things come out of maturity. I would say to my younger self, there is a life available for more joy and more meaning and more adventure and more satisfaction, but it's a life that you cannot get independently. You know what the funny thing about this episode is? Is that we actually did a podcast on Dad's article on returning and the river. And then... We roped in Justin and Dave, and we did a podcast on ultra running, which is a truly fantastic episode. But then, looking at the rest of the summer issue, which it's late in the summer, but it's still the summer issue, has just been released, we realized that we could sort of lump the rest together and talk more about them. There's only so much you can say in 800 to 2,000 words. And these are topics that we choose to write on because we've already spent often weeks and months thinking about them. So today, if you haven't read the summer issue, you should do so. After this, this will greatly enrich your reading experience and uh, may not even correspond that much to what you see there. Or if you've already read it, go back in time. Don't read it. Listen to this first. Then read it. Just kidding. This is going to be just as good if you clicked on the email in your junk folder and went and read Sense Whoa, article. Whoa, it does get filtered into the social tab on Gmail, which is really obnoxious. I just send everything from you into my junk folder. That's what I'm trying to say here. Explains a lot of our inner office communication. The summer issue just came out, and all the kids have gone back to school. Partially, this is uh, because we've had other things we've been working on which maybe we'll touch on later, but it should be no surprise to... Any regular tribe member. Yeah, exactly. It is still summer, regardless of whether or not the children have gone back to grade school. Um, it, was a, it was an issue that we have just... We kind of bring things that we've been marinating in and thinking about, though you kind of took a hard left turn on what you were going to write about, which is always surprising. You know... This is an aside, but I'm sure those people, there are people out there that know what this is like, where you you ask somebody to do something and they say they'll go do it. And then they do something completely different, but it's just, it's really good. But you're like, that's fine. That happens almost every time with the that's with true. building It's issues. mostly true of Padre though, where oh, yeah. you give him a writing prompt simply to give him something to react against. It's more like the starting gun than it is anything you think he will ever it's I what know. I did in like all my creative writing classes. Normally I'd be like, go outside and find something to look at and then write about it. And I'd be like, I'm going to write about how dumb this is that you're making me go do this thing. So reading. I wrote about reading and reading more. This is a topic that I could talk about probably ad infinitum, sometimes mispronounced ad infinitum. I have literally never heard it pronounced correctly or incorrectly. Wow, there's very few native Latin speakers. But there's just the reality. I think the point of origin here uh, is having a deep respect for being incarnate and acknowledging neuroplasticity. 
which hopefully you also listened to the Become Good Soil podcast. So in April, the inimitable Sherry Snyder gave sort of a manifesto on uh, the neuroplasticity of our brains and the way that God can actually use that to bring deep restoration to us through the disciplines that are that he's laid out. But this is also very helpful before we dive into more on the benefits of and the exhortation to and then some skills in becoming a super reader, becoming a reader in the way that certain people are runners or whatever their daily discipline is. And that's the reality of your brain, which we talk about a lot because we live life in bodies. And as Dallas Willard observes, our bodies are the focal point of our lives, are phenomenal at building patterns that structure the way that we engage the world. And that's why we observe that virtue develops over a long time because it's there's the analog of the soul and the body and it takes a lot of practice of being kind for someone to begin in their life with God to default uh, to kindness, patience, prudence, self-control. These things come out of a life with God, but also the thing there is they come out of a regular life with God. So whatever the reality is, it involves this thing of pattern. Right now, we live in a moment where visual information kind of trumps everything. There are certain neuroscientists who applaud a digital age because they go, you know, playing video games increases the rate at which someone processes visual information, which I think is silly because that's like saying, you know, running more increases your ability to use oxygen. And you go, well, that's just true because those systems are related, but it doesn't actually offer any judgment on whether or not that's a good thing, like how much visual information a person is supposed to be able to take in and rapidly process. Because what it inclines to do is live in an age with poor attention spans, uh, more and more snap judgments, less and less deep contemplation, the nature of which is the thing that actually allows us to enjoy God, have deep relationships, keep loving people over decades. So we live in an age that sort of uh, builds brains that react very quickly to environments by being able to take in and process just an astonishing amount of data and form an opinion super quickly. Obviously, this is what brains default to, but you know, we've talked before about like flicker fusion rates and yeah, we've talked a lot about the screens and how we feel about those sorts of things. Yeah, and so simply to say all of this, boom. By the way, flicker fusion, we can't say it enough. House flies have a faster flicker fusion rate than the most video game obsessed person you know, which is why they escape you even though they only fly five miles an hour. Did you know that you started the sentence with, we can't say this enough, like <laughs> those damn flies? House flies. Five miles an hour is how fast oh they gosh. fly. When most people talk about reading, Blaine, they do one of two things. They say either, oh, I love reading and have you read the latest series, blah, 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 blah. Or they say, I don't really like reading. I like watching movies. You don't get very many interactions of Oh, I've been reading and I've been really enjoying um, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. Just find it fascinating. I don't think I'll ever be able to fully understand all of it, but some of the ideas really just uh, stimulate the imagination and possibilities. Yeah, I think you like are more likely to, in my experience, and I include myself in my experience, find people to go, I wish someone would make me read 
that book and penalize me if I didn't because then maybe I would. That thing happened. It was called high school and maybe college and you still didn't read it. (laughs) But now you wish that some of those structures existed Uh, because reading is this arcane discipline that does all these incredible things for a person. One of the fascinating things about that rule that I wanted to throw in there was there's always a good reason to not read something. It's just that like on a neurological level, there's there aren't big distinctions between reading something and experiencing something yourself. The level of deep imaginative contemplation produces a response to say, reading a palm-sweating account of climbing the Eiger as actually going out. There are real differences, but this deep engagement literally shapes a person, which is why we actually have to talk about providing some structure to take those two poles of I love reading all the time and I never read and build a bridge between them that we can walk across in order to like embrace the lifestyle that maybe books are a key part of flourishing. So you did give a couple of rules in your article, and then you gave a list of books you recommended, which I think Susie quickly scrolled to because she loves people's recommended book lists. But for this space, what were the tools you gave for people to bridge the gap between I either love reading, but I need it to be something sci-fi or fantasy or whatever your genre of choice is, and then, and then there's those, that gap that a lot of people say of, I don't like reading. And personally, I just, I feel like I've got 10 books that I'm three chapters into and have no intention of picking it back up again recently. So what were some of the things that you threw out there for people to uh, strengthen these muscles of reading? The first one is to begin thinking of reading in the way that we think of exercise, which I might just replace with movement. And going, uh, movement is a key part of living in a, a life that is meant to be embodied. Reading, storytelling, deep contemplative engagement is a key part of what it means to live life as a storytelling being, as an empathetic relational being in God's universe. So it is like exercise. But in order to enjoy moving and in order to enjoy reading, there you have to kind of embrace Lewis's distinction between necessary and learned pleasures of there are pleasures which are just a given and it's the generosity of God and it's uh, many of the wonderful parts of a person's life. Having to hold it too long before you go to the bathroom and then all of a sudden you like see the word restroom somewhere. Like nobody needs to teach you to really enjoy that relief. It's just going to happen. Or like the response to getting in cold water on a hot day, like There's versions of that, obviously, in its extreme that need to be learned, but most of the time that's just a pure, like, necessary relief, like, oh my gosh, I love being in this creek right now. You know, and some books are like that for me. Like, every once in a while, I'll pick up a book and I'll get two pages in and I'll be like, I'm not moving. I'm going to sit on this chair, couch, whatever, until I am done with this because it's so good. Yeah, and even in this great essay, Lewis explains that The necessary is often the pathway to the learned pleasure where it promises you that you will enjoy the outcome. And so you like find a book that you just love, often fiction, often like accessible fiction, which there's no reason to ever stop loving that. They're great stories. And that sort of promises you that 
if you embrace the discipline and begin engaging hard, harder and harder books, you'll get to the spot of getting incredible joy out of tackling hard stories and hard ideas reflected in stories. So read like you exercise was the first one. Mm. If we only ever moved when we felt like it, we would miss out on what can be like a wonderful part of a person's life. And there are a number of books coming out right now on the intersection between the spiritual and the physical life, which is just, I guess, returning to the roots of Christian discipleship and going, wow, it actually looks like what we do with our bodies totally affects what we do with our souls. We need to be more intentional with our bodies and go, yes, we also need to be more intentional with these things that impact our souls as in the form of reading and go, it doesn't just happen. Read as often as you exercise. Read like you exercise. If I could not like set goals for myself and set times during the week that were reading times, I would never get through certain books. I would never get through like as many books as I would like to. Uh, it just doesn't happen. And so it's the simplest thing. But, you know, I mentioned Ryan Holiday, who is an uber super reader in that article. And he just observes that like other things, but maybe even more so, reading time never just happens. There's always something better to do than carve out prolonged contemplative time, not just speed reading, not just perusal, but to go like the next hour, I'm just going to be engaging this book. I'm going to go ahead and, and just keep throwing uh, like addendums on, which because I wanted to write more in the article about like, hopefully you begin to enjoy it more and more. But also you carve out that hour simply for the practice, simply for what it's going to do to your brain. There are studies that observe that reading makes a person more empathetic in the same way that going into the woods makes a person more empathetic. And there are ways that it actually deepens the connections uh, between imagination and sense data in the brain. So you're cultivating your faculty in real time. You're cultivating the component parts of creativity by reading, even if you don't get it. There are lots of books that I have right now that the words sort of run together, but it's the practice. It's, I'm actually just going to keep reading this. Like Dan Allender, in a recent conversation, we we're talking about books, and he's reading this evidently incredibly difficult book on the evolution of warfare as it related to the concept of uh, the self and society, right? This is a crazy book in the history of the United States, and he just accepts that he can only read six pages or so of this book before bed. And he goes, it's the last thing that I do before prayer at the end of my day. And I can't take very much of it. But that's, depending on your season, it's like a great rhythm to adapt is I'm a few pages of something as the last act before prayer of your day. Great thing. I also talked about Reading all of the book, you know, as a reading practice, I think that most people skip the editor's note. Most people skip the prologue, the preface, the introduction, whatever it is that they choose to name that thing before the book actually starts. You will always be disoriented whether or not you know it if you do that. This is just the ultimate basic readerly tip. It's like, no, 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 no. Read the whole thing, because also, if there's an editor's note, you really want to know why that editor was engaging the book in the way that they were. 
if you're reading work in translation and there's a translation note, those are absolutely key. Like translators' notes around Beowulf help you understand that Beowulf seems really repetitive, but it's because we don't have the same uh, like emphasis of war in our language as does Old English. So translators will say, hey, there's going to be the word battle gear and sword and armor a lot. You just need to know that there are like 20 different Old English words that describe the emotional dimension, the situation, the use, the history of these things. We don't have any of the words to do that. We're going to approximate. So if you keep seeing these things, you just need to know that you're trying to inhabit the Anglo-Saxon worldview. I feel like this is where the uh, patience and kindness come into play as you've been practicing a thing, because there have been several introductions that I've started reading and gone, oh my gosh, this is like an academic paper to start this book. Like I have to run a marathon mentally to even begin this thing. And I'll, you know, skim, peruse, get into the first chapter, and then the book ends up back on the shelf. So those intros, very helpful, very orienting, and also very much a process of the, sometimes you only get to read a couple pages of the intro before you go to bed, because that's where you're at. But eventually that orientation actually is going to be something that you anticipate and apply everywhere else. But at some point on the journey, it can be something that pushes you off the horse. That's a really good point. There's another essay, more C.S. Lewis on reading. He thought about reading a lot, where he was talking about, our problem is we read too many people talking about the greats versus reading the greats because people will go, well, you're not really going to get Euripides unless we explain Greek drama first. And while that is true, it's also true that by virtue of being a great writer, we'll actually be be more accessible, stir more in you. There's more to be had. I talked about reading the classics, which I recommend everyone do. Although they're they're sometimes a lot easier to listen to. It's just a super basic tip of if you if you've never been able to get through the Iliad, <laughs> it will help you fall asleep if you listen to it at night because of the way the cadences are. But if you listen to it in the car, you'll kind of get the oh, this is happening. If you listen to the car, you'll fall asleep and cause a massive accident. Hopefully not, but. And so there is this power in engaging the epics on their own terms. But then without editor's notes and without books on the work, I was just having a conversation with Jesse, who's been on here a couple of times, about the Odyssey. This is Odysseus's return home after the Trojan War. And there's actually two narrators. There's the objective narrator telling the story, and there's Odysseus telling the story. And it's so interesting because all of the adventures, like the Cyclops and the intersection with the gods, those are all Odysseus talking. And it's so fascinating to go, oh my gosh, we trust him, but we don't trust him because he's also the sole survivor. And he's this grizzled old warrior who's showing up and they're asking, what happened? And he's like, I was run aground and there was a Cyclops and then the Furies and we barely escaped Scylla and Charybdis. And you know that you can believe him, but also you're like, why is Odysseus saying this? Why is the narrator, who's actually objective, only telling me the sort of more circumstantial things like he arrived back home, he went on to kill everybody. It's a super interesting way to read Odyssey that without experienced guides, you would never ever know. I never noticed it. A couple more points on becoming a super reader, like 
I talked about research parkour and have how reading is a process of discovery. It's not like, you know, this syncopated set of texts that you read one book and then hopefully you find another book. And it's kind of this, no, like reading is this lifestyle thing. And as you read one book, somebody mentions somebody, so you find that. Or as one thing that I love to do, if you want like a dynamite interviewee, any of the interviews that Mary Carr, who I've mentioned a few times now, and I really like her poetry and autobiography, her interviews are so awesome because she's so sassy. But in the course of interviews, like Mary Carr will mention a dozen other writers that she aspires to. And she'll advise people who want to be writers. She'll be like, read a lot and don't read me and Dave Eggers. Read people who are better than us because we aren't the top of the mountain. We are people who are aspiring to get there. So read difficult, great writers. Read for what it will do to your brain. Read for what it will do to your empathy. Read for what it will do for your ability to return to the present moment where Jesus lives. So even if you don't like the book, you've still developed this ability to contemplate such that the next time that you're sitting around a fire with friends, you will find your body in which you dwell more able to stay present to the conversation longer simply because your brain is accustomed to the workout in the way that if you run and get invited to go to a hike, you'll like the hike more. So lots of reasons to do that. That is probably the best and maybe the foremost argument for it. Like there's many good reasons for yourself, your strength, your character, your persona, uh, just interest and, and depth, but like that, that ability to be present in other situations and to engage and to question and to ask, like that ability alone does not come naturally and will be very necessary over and over and over and over again. And so even if there's some part of you that goes, I don't know, this is all sounding really difficult. And Blaine's talking about the Iliad, which is just like stereotypically difficult. So I guess I've just failed and oh well. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. You want this ability. You may not want to go out and run a marathon, but you want the ability to go on a hike. And so you probably need to go for a walk. That piece, Blaine, that you just mentioned of like the sitting group with friends one evening and the ability to be present and not be dissociating or going somewhere else. You need to be developing this. Yeah, there are things, but one more word on development is... Don't start with Iliad, mm-hmm. you know, and when we don't start with the marathon, accept the practice, accept the lifelong discipline, and then read Ender's Game. Read Stephen Rinella's book, Meat Eater, which is wonderfully written, very accessible and great hunting stories. Like you shouldn't start and go, I am going to read everything that James Joyce ever read. And I'm like, well, that's a problem because Eventually, you're going to have to read Finnegan's Wake if you're doing that, which everyone hates, even people that love it. That is the ultra marathon through the woods, you know, Berkeley Relay or Berkeley Marathon or whatever that one is called. Yeah, I think back even to last week's episode on ultra running and the advice of you're going to be here for a while. So be kind to yourself. I think we get this idea that if we're going to do the thing, we might as well jump in the deep end and start tackling the big fish. But it's like that's going to take you out so fast be kind to yourself even in the world of reading yeah 
this is why it's funny but very true that someone who like currently is a big reader has never read say louis the moore i'm a little bit alarmed and just going hang on what was your point of entry was it not compelling stories that convinced you to commit to this process because otherwise you know we should all be alarmed of the person who is reading because they want to be considered someone who reads <laughs> like if there's anything of the display of the self in any of the activities we uh, embrace we understand that we are in the track to become dedicated pharisees and like there are lots of times where I've made art to be considered an artist and we could go down the rabbit trail of those funny stories and like the irritating interpersonal consequences of that. But it's not to be seen as a reader. It's not to get to have Gilead under your arm. It's actually the humility and process of the student embracing a practice which they know will help their soul and body over the long haul and is tragically undervalued in our moment. So, boom. All right, Sam. Talk to me about why you're so damn sentimental. Hard left. Whiplash. Oh, there it is. Um, I just want to everybody know that I found a photo, a stock photo, that looks exactly like Finley. I have from the back, the curly hair. With the curly hair and and the little green jacket. I was like, oh my gosh. Someone took a photo of Sam's daughter. (laughs) But just in case you thought, is that actually her? No. No, it's not. Sam's much too sentimental to allow the public to see his family life. I don't even think the hand, the cover photo, is one of our kids, or is it? No, it's not. Yeah, no. What Blaine's referring to is the article I wrote um, called Immeasurable Gain, Crushing Loss. And it's been something I've been wrestling with. Uh, It's come up several times in the podcast, how sentimental I can be when it comes to my daughter and now son, which I think surprised me and probably didn't surprise other people. But in person, I do project this kind of, like, I'm everything's going to be okay persona. It's not that it's I don't feel that way, but it's it's very like I don't tend to be the effusive half of the couple that is me and my wife. She sort of dials things up to a hundred so I can leave things at a cool five, and uh, when it comes to the kids, though, I just have found to be like this bleeding heart, like left and right things happen. And Susie loves telling this story. One morning. I'm at the kitchen table with my daughter, which is often the case. Susie tends to be up all night with the younger one. And so when our older one wakes up, which is often too early, I take her downstairs and I make some coffee and I give her breakfast so Susie can sleep for another half hour or so. And she's sitting there in her high chair and I'm feeding her and I'm interacting with her. And I kind of go like, I just ask her like, who loves you? Like who who loves his little girl? And next thing I know, I'm tearing up as I'm asking this simple question. And it's become this joke that as we have told the story over and over that I start just like, Daddy's okay. Daddy loves you. It's fun. These are happy tears, sweetheart. As I just ask this simple question and then melt down. I've been surprised by that part of myself, which has quickly and uh, without my permission, risen to the surface. But part of me is learning that it's just sort of always been, a part of it is who I am. Um, several friends have been 
diving back into the Enneagrams thing, which I'm sure some of you are aware of, there's just always personality tests, you guys. And our world is fascinated with talking about ourselves. And so we find these things to do it in more concise language. But in the Enneagrams, I'm a four, which is sort of like the bleeding heart center of things. We're like very in touch with our emotions. We share them eagerly and openly and often help others to see them. Tends to be artists, uh, but not. it's not necessary to be an artist, unfortunately. They say that a lot of our words to even describe emotions came from fours. Like people didn't even have the, the categories for some of these things. And then, you know, a four walks in the room and goes, oh, this is what you're feeling. And the person's like, I am feeling that. And that's come across in a bunch of my writing as I've looked back and gone, oh, like I very eagerly share stories that are somewhat personal and often somewhat emotional, if not entirely blow your socks off emotional sometimes. Though part of what I've experienced when it comes to the the kids is my personality type. I think part of it too is just entering into a new reality of being a parent Um, And there's something that comes with that territory. The whole point of the article was that I've had to grapple with loss in moments that should purely be gain. And it feels like either a personal vulnerability or it feels like the enemy or it feels like something external. But like there's these beautiful moments as (laughs) Susie's making finley some toast and we don't give her a lot of bread but we get this great bread from a bakery in town and so we're you know she's she sees that she's going to get this toast and she's pointing at it and asking for it and then Susie busts out the almond butter and finley's like looking back and forth at the almond butter and the toast and is like wait what's happening and then Susie puts the almond butter on the toast and finley's reaction is to go (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) like mind blown that these can be combined and then get handed to her and she's like literally has a happy dance like we'll kind of hop back and forth on her feet and like that is i love those moments they happen all the time and also in the snap of your fingers i go to she's not gonna do that forever like that moment was beautiful and hysterical and it's gone I don't know why I do that I don't know why that happens and it doesn't have to like rob the moment that's that's a lot of what I was talking about in the article of actually it can cause us to be more present to the moments and requires us to be rooted in eternity otherwise everything that's beautiful a sunset a vacation a relationship um, a date uh, giving your daughter almond buttered toast can be so devastating because they don't last. And so every time those little stories happen, I get photos and texts throughout the workday when I'm not at home of things that have that have happened. And like I love them. And I also have had to be really careful with the way that my heart responds to it because there have been many an evening when my wife and I will just cry a little bit at the beauty of something that happened that day and how it's passing, which is something I didn't really understand before when, you know, our mom would be all sentimental and be like, oh, I remember when you'd scrape your knee, I get to hold you and comfort you. And you'd be like, yeah, whatever, mom, I'm a grown boy now. I don't need you to comfort me unless I scrape my knee again and then help me, please. Where you went in the article was this reality that even if you're not a four 
or even if you don't respond with emotion, there is intentional and poignant indefinence to impermanence to in this moment joy and beauty and it's on purpose and we need very quickly to on purpose develop our holding places for that reality and what we our response what we do you know the i just think of how the anglo-saxons they called it ubisunt you're thinking wait why did they speak latin well doesn't matter but it is them and it's where is it it's like what do we do with this like we see something beautiful and rather than fulfillment what we experience is longing and i think most of us especially as kids around like great summer evenings or the ending of trips that we loved or the way people have this crazy moment at high school graduation even if they hated high school like of like oh my gosh ubi student i'm being in this moment of completion and beauty being struck with the impermanence of this world, which I think is an intentional thing. Do you remember how crappy the day after Christmas was as a kid? Like As a kid? As a kid, it was like the worst day ever. You had made like the little paper mache daisy chain counting down the days to Christmas, and then Christmas happens, Christmas morning happens, and the presents are open, and the waffles are eaten, and it's the afternoon, you're still playing with your stuff, and you wake up, and it's the 26th, and you're like, dang it. It's another 364 days until that happens again. The 26th is a real bummer. That's the thing that's the experience I think I can have much closer, even like within the same moment now as a parent. I can be like, oh my gosh, she just like got totally excited for almond buttered toast. Oh crap, the moment just ended. So you're sort of like the exaggeration that makes the principle clear to regular people. Yeah, you know, I think that's what uh, most great writers and thinkers are, Blaine, is that they they point out the contrast in the extreme so that we can experience it and be aware of it in the small, the ways that we have been missing it in our own lives. Yeah, don't you wish that was true? But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) no, like you say in your article, this can strengthen the eternal part of you. This can be the thing that makes the reality restoration real to you by aggregating your need for it. Right. And you can go, you know, you can be the person who goes, this makes like, you know, I think of the logical extreme of this, which is the loss of a person and some writer, I don't remember who, talking about trying to reflect on from a kingdom perspective the loss of his wife. This goes like, this makes heaven sweeter, earth fowler. It might even be C.S. Lewis because he was so bummed. Um, and you go like... <laughs> bummed. The is, ultimate understatement. <laughs> this is something wow. that is like strengthening my need for eternity but making like the present like worse because of this loss. There's a different version of that though which is going like this is anchoring my hope more and more in a coming restoration. But the fact that we are bringing that into the earth in our life with God can make this better as well. It doesn't cause you to disengage, right? There's this like, this is what we're doing. Socially, we're very familiar with the idea of difficulty drawing you closer to God because 
they are the moments when you're like, oh, I haven't really been in relationship with him or talking to him until things are really low. Like if things are going fine, I can kind of do it on, by my own. This is something I've heard and read and seen over and over and over and over again. And those are like very good lessons and very good waters to step into. We've been reading mom's uh, advanced copy of Defiant Joy, which is all about this. Like, what do you do in the moments when things feel bleak, hard, and how do you turn towards God? I hope this is the case for most people, and I think that it is. But I would argue, at least in my life, that the good moments far outweigh those really dark moments. Because if you have eyes for it, the good moments are maybe very small, but they're happening all the time. You might be sitting on a park bench and you know white butterflies fly by and you love white butterflies. I still think of Amy, actually, when it comes to that, because those were like a very personal gift for her, even though they were like nothing. I mean, I didn't think they were even butterflies. I think they were actually moths, but like it didn't matter. So these good moments happen much more frequently. And I think I want to be aware of what I do with them. One part of me wants to like grab hold of them and like crush those little butterflies and preserve them and stare at them all the time which obviously doesn't work and that grasping can make me do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next vacation the next race the next chocolate sundae whatever or they can cause me to really examine where i place those things in my heart that are getting evoked and exposed and for me like experiencing beautiful moments with my family can be totally crushing because I can try to grab hold of them and I have yet to master the ability of stopping time. And so it's sort of futile to try and grab hold of them. And if I stay there, then they become really crushing because I can't stop it from leaving. But instead that idea of in those moments I can actually be strengthened because I I can practice where I'm putting my hope. I can, I can practice the nothing is lost I may not understand the fullness of what the restored heaven is going to be, but I know that if I can imagine something that is good and kind and healing for my soul, then surely my imagination is not greater than the creator of all of creation. So whatever it's going to be, I know that that part of my heart will be taken care of. And that is honestly how I can navigate through those moments of like I get to celebrate those moments more and I get to be more present in them because I'm not trying to like grab hold of them I'm also not dissociated from them because they're too painful because they don't last I get to like actually sit in them experience them and then not really grieve their passing because I'm not afraid of losing them and it's been this remarkable like Ah, moment for me because historically I've done one or the other like I've just if something's been too good I've checked out because it's going to be painful when it ends like how you start thinking about home at the end of a vacation because you like can't be present anymore because you know it's going to finish or how you already start booking your next vacation because you can't stand not having something to look forward to like can you just be there and know that more good things will come and that this good thing is good, even though it's going to end. This is a great segue to a brief comment on the heretofore undescribed article, which had to do with creating to God, maintaining the creative life. And the reason it's a good segue is because there's this famous passage, Deuteronomy 4, of you will seek me when you find me with your whole heart. And all of what we're talking about entails this engagement 
of our heart unto God. Like there is an invitation of him into the loss. There is an oppressing into the experience of loss, even through beauty as an affliction, which brings us into the presence of God and changes the moment. This is what I love about that Deuteronomy passage is Deuteronomy 4. It's all about, uh, please obey this law. Like we're going to have this, we're going to give this whole second telling of this life that's meant to, that will promote your flourishing, that will allow the presence of God to dwell among you. And it starts with, I think, this really beautiful line of, do not let these things fade from your heart. And it's, God has done all these things for you. Don't forget them. And then it goes, but when you do, and then it talks about, uh, you're going to be afflicted, thrown into exile, like things will not go well out of union with God. And then it goes, and from that place, you can find God again when you seek him with your whole heart. Unlike Scott and Mandy, who we had on the podcast, not a Hebrew scholar, but I, like everybody else, do have access to, you know, primary language resources. And the word seek, I assumed was going to be insane. And it turns out it is. Like the the applications of what they're describing of that seeking of God, like, yes, it can be used for repeatedly study. Yes, it can be described to beat out a path, uh, like to make a foray into new territory. It can refer to practice. It can also refer to a variety of military activities. But there's this, you know what? When you are like everything at your disposal becomes a vehicle with which you are pursuing God and you're offering to him, there's this promise of it'll work. And in looking at the creative lives of people around me, through just stumbling on some pieces of art that people I knew had created, there was this astonishing, like, what? You're just making this offering and it's so beautiful? Like, wow. Like, I'm sort of reverse engineering from there. You are looking at the things that compose your heart. Like, you are a writer. You are a poet. You are a good friend. Like, we aren't talking about what we classify as the arts per se. Like, we're talking about this thing that you have to offer God in the world. And it's like, and you're viewing that as part of the thing with which you're seeking God. Therefore, there is dogged, regular, repeated practice and expression and offering. And the result are these beautiful things that come out of this, like you're making an offering to God of your whole heart, which includes the part of it, which you're probably most shy about, which is your creative capacity unto God. And yet, because you want to enjoy him, you are beating out the path, returning, showing up, offering. And then there are, on occasion, these visible elements of that lifestyle, which are families and games and songs and pieces of visual art, that when you stumble on someone else's, it's like, oh my gosh, this offering is so beautiful. The life of God that I can see here is so potent to me that it actually is transformative.